Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Siegel, your host, and today we'll be joined by Professor Andrea Peto. Welcome to our podcast today. Hi, Stephen. Thank you very much for the invitation. So I'm very pleased and honored today um, to be interviewing Professor Peto. She's the author of many, many books, uh, which our listeners will already be familiar with. Today, we'll be talking about her new book out with Palgrave, it's called The Women of the Arrow Cross Party, Invisible Hungarian Perpetrators in the Second World War, published by Palgrave Press in 2020. A little bit about Professor Peto for our listening audience. So she was born in 1964, and she's the professor in the Department of Gender Studies at Central European University, now in Vienna. Professor Peto is a doctor of science of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences. And she's now teaching courses on European comparative social and gender history, her area of expertise, as well as gender and politics, women's movements, qualitative methods, oral history, and the Holocaust. Her works have been published in 23 languages. Uh, Just to mention a couple of of her recent um, awards, (laughs) there are so many. Um, In 2005, she was awarded the Officers Cross Order of Merit of the Republic of Hungary, uh, by the President of the Hungarian Republic, and the Boyer Prize by the Hungarian Academy of Sciences in 2006. Uh, recently in 2018, Professor Peto was awarded the 2018 All-European Academy's Madame de Stahl Prize for Cultural Values. Uh, and she is um, today in Stockholm, Sweden, at Södertörn University, Dr. Honoris Causa of that university. So um, I'll just start with a general question about the book for you. Um, in reading this, I'm, I'm absolutely struck by the innovation you have. Um, and the point, I'm not sure if it's a, the main argument, but it's a really big point that feminist historians make in covering not just women who are icons, but women, in your case, in this book, who are war criminals. So uh, I would like to kind of start with that topic and ask you about the main arguments for the book and what, why, you, why you wrote it, what brought you to this topic. Thank you very much for the question and also for the invitation. I'm a big fan of this uh, New Books Network. I mean, I'm uh, getting my uh, reading recommendations often from there. And uh, uh, the, the history of the book goes back to 2000, uh, uh, for the first uh, uh, Fidesz government, the Hungarian uh, conservative government, when suddenly lots of uh, women NGOs uh, showed up and lots of women in politics. And that was the time when there was a new uh, subculture of conservative women's NGOs came to being. And uh, I was just wondering that why is this the case that those women who are uh, working in the human rights framework, they are 
marginal, no more than, we are talking about no more than 100 people, and suddenly there is this flourishing subculture. And then I uh, wrote a book about uh, uh, this uh, phenomenon about the conservative and far-right women, interviewing them, um, asking them about uh, uh, why did they join uh, the politics, uh, what were the motivations, what were their agenda, what was their family background. And uh, uh, then I, I mean, this sounds horribly pretentious, but I was actually uh, forecasting this illiberal term uh, as far as women's politics is uh, concerned. And uh, when I was sitting in these uh, living rooms, and I would like to use this opportunity to thank these women for their trust, and this was a wide range of women, starting from neo-Nazis to uh, kind of uh, liberal conservatives who are um, who opened up for me and uh, helped me to to write this book. And uh, I'm very grateful for their trust. Uh, I felt that I I'm back in time very often that I'm sitting there in 1938 or 40, and I was wondering what happened. What happened? Uh, um, uh, during the Second World War and after the, the lustration and the justice process after the Second World War, uh, because this seemed to be non-existing uh, for this uh, for these women. So then I started to work on the history of the People's Tribunals uh, after uh, this was a special. Uh, institution set up after 1945 following the Soviet example, uh, which dealt with the war criminals and the crimes committed by uh, Hungarian perpetrators. And I was looking for the women there, so and how this special uh, institution dealt with the women. And then I I was um, uh, looking for the uh, the different institutions which were expected to make the difference after the Second World War, because these women whom I had the privilege to interview, they seemed to be totally ignoring what happened between 1944 and 1989. They only presented themselves as victims of of communism, no matter that some of them actually were coming from pretty well of families who were uh, having uh, not much difficulties during communism. So that's when I started to. Right. Yeah. And, and I am very curious about the arrow cross movement, which you describe um, under the Horthy regime, but it, you describe how it was denied official recognition. And so what were some of the, first of all, what is it for our listeners? And then secondly, what were some of the challenges or obstacles you faced um, in interviewing it as you decided to go through sources and then examine some of the some of the secondary literature as you do in the book? So the Aerocross Party is the Hungarian Nazi Party or Fascist Party, but it's uh, the comparison is not really the Nazi Party but the Fascist Party, but rather the Republic of Salo in uh, Italy. Uh, This was formed as a kind of uh, uh, conglomerate of several uh, far-right groups, um, and uh, uh, it uh, got the power after the failed attempt of Admiral Horthy to sign an armistice with the Allied forces um, on the uh, 15th of October 1944. And uh, 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 Hungary was occupied by the uh, Nazi German forces on uh, on the 19th of March uh, 1944, and this period uh, of the um, German occupation was uh, uh, the 
very tragic period uh, of the Hungarian history. And um, the, uh, then the arrow cross rule became even more tragic this, uh, this period. And uh, the country uh, was liberated by the Red Army uh, around at the early April 1945. So that's basically the timeline. And why, I mean, the key question uh, is for this book is the issue of invisibility. So what makes these women invisible? And uh, uh, that, that was the, uh, that's the uh, main question for the, uh, for the book. And also that uh, uh, because this invisibility, and that's one of the main arguments of the book, contributed to the revival of a, a form of uh, uh, women's politics and a, a form of... Uh, 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 historical consciousness in Hungary uh, after 1989, which actually led to this extremely successful illiberal turn, what we are experiencing Hungary in Hungary today. So this, the question of invisibility. So why these women are are not uh, uh, visible? So first of all, uh, because of the uh, uh, characteristic of uh, of women in politics. So. Uh, usually the uh, male leaders of, of the uh, party politics are visible. Uh, secondly, because this uh, was an extremely heterogeneous group, maybe we might talk about this later on, and also because of the uh, of the framework of the post-45 anti-fascist framework, which was mostly interested in uh, pinning the responsibility for the war crime uh, for the war crimes in Hungary to a very well-defined group, and their women were uh, not there. And also the different research um, uh, attempts, the fasc- research on fascism, the research on perpetrators, and also feminist uh, scholarship, uh, uh, they were neither of them were very much interested in women till recently. And I haven't mentioned the problem of getting access to sources. So this is a... Yeah, a vo- let's, yeah. let's talk about that. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Because I, you know, in establishing your source base, I, I mean, I want to come back to a lot of the topics that you just raised about the invisibilization, because each one of your chapters has the word invisible, party members, political actors, defendants, and photographs, um, and the heterogeneous um, nature of this Hungarist or far-right Hungarian movement turned into a party. But I, let's talk about those sources for a moment. So um, how, how do you make the invisible visible? What, what do you find? Where did you go? And what, uh, what disappointments maybe did you face or surprises did you, did you have? Yeah, uh- Historian can only write history when there are sources. And uh, uh, also there are moments when you have to uh, uh, admit that there are no more sources. You cannot write more, right? So which uh, also helps to you know, finish a book project, which uh, some of the authors are, are struggling with, but uh, that helped me to finish this uh, book project. But uh, as I uh, mentioned, it started from uh, the different um, People's Tribunal court files. And these court uh, uh, people's tribunal files are very specific uh, sources, but that was the beginning. So I tried to establish uh, who were those women who got on the radar of the new Hungarian um, uh, legal system, who were those whom they uh, asked to extradite from the uh, allied forces um, who escaped uh, 
together with the German army to the west, and who were those who got to the different uh, 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 courts. And uh, I tried to read as many files as possible and uh, and uh, uh, set up a kind of uh, uh, sociological survey about who actually got to these trials, which is, you know, mm-hmm. immediately yeah. makes raises the question that who are those who did not have a trial, right? Exactly, it, yes. Who did not have a trial, and then they are not, they, we don't have the documents. And this is one. Uh, but the other is that when you have those documents, what kind uh, of uh, uh, source criticism do you have to apply to, uh, to use those uh, court files? And that's why there is this chapter about the, uh, uh, invisible defendants, because this uh, the gender politics of the people's tribunals uh, is pretty uh, interesting, remarkable, and made certain uh, uh, perpetrators uh, more visible than others. Yeah, and I, I'm you know I'm a fan of your work for many years back because I also do biography. So when you're trying to get into the social history and biography and life story of these women, what what techniques were you using? Did because you're, you're talking about a certain base of women who are then perpetrators but supporters of violence on the far right. So how did you actually get inside? Because you you have so many names here. What 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 was your approach? Uh, my approach was, I mean, from the beginning, an extremely simple one. Try to collect the names of women from these people's tribunals files. And I, I mean, I knew very few of them uh, because I'm arguing in this book that uh, half of the uh, f- uh, women who got to the uh, people's tribunals, they were ordinary housewives. Right. right. So, so right. I mean, it's it's not uh, me being uninformed, but that's a very different uh, uh, social group, and uh, uh, and I just wanted to set up a kind of a list of uh, uh, those women who are uh, who who were uh, defendants in the um, in the people's court, and also there are some prominent cases, like prominent cases, be either because of the crimes which were committed by women or uh, because the defendants were, you know, particularly uh, famous or, or interesting. And um, uh, that was the beginning. And uh, maybe that's the moment to talk a little bit about the perpetrator in the, Please. Uh, in, in, the, in, the in the title, because this is a, a controversial term, because I'm actually uh, using the um, the terminology of the communist-dominated uh, people's tribunals, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm consciously using this term, uh, and I'm explaining also in the book that uh, I got access to these files, and the women are represented in these files because of the communist legal uh, 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 process. Therefore, the perpetrator as a category is really important to understand their uh, acts, their life stories, and the way how they were presenting themselves uh, for the communist um, uh, legal system. And also, uh, there is another political reason I'm consciously using this uh, uh, this term perpetrator, uh, although during the even the review process, the reviewer, reviewer whom I would like to express my 
gratitude also asked that um, am I sure that perpetrator should be in the title? It, it's because a fair it question. Is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because it's uh, because it's so a uh, passé. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, but I uh, I'm politically insisting on having the perpetrator in this uh, title because there were crimes which these uh, women actually committed, and uh, what we experience today in the historiography. Uh, that there is this relativization of uh, the crimes committed during the Second World War with the argument that the People's Tribunals were a communist justice mord, a kind of unfair, mm-hmm. non-transparent, ad hoc process. Therefore, these therefore this, uh, uh, women and the other uh, uh, perpetrators were unfairly treated, and this was not a, a good uh, uh, and acceptable process. And this is the argument which is used by several uh, 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 conservative and uh, illiberal uh, regimes in uh, Eastern Europe in order to somehow hide the fact that these yeah. hun- citizens of Hungary committed serious crimes during the Second World War against fellow Hungarian citizens. Yeah, and I want to follow up again on some of the uh, moments in your book where you're discussing what the Germans call Täterforschung, right? This perpetrator research, because there seems to be a natural inclination to make the comparison in the history of fascism or fascism studies to Italy and Germany. But in in taking your sample, you're actually working very much out of modern Hungarian history and especially out of modern Hungarian gender history. So could could you talk about the specific kind of Hungarian circumstances for these gender politics and gender values? What what leads you, let's say, in doing both your primary and secondary research on um, these perpetrators to, to frame it in the way you do? That That is to frame it in a way that's not naturally comparative to the normal comparisons that people sometimes make? Mm-hmm. So uh, there were several uh, theoretical and methodological challenges when I was working on this book for 20 years. Let's <laughs> <laughs> mention yeah. that too, Andrea. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so uh, one, one, of the, one of the challenges is that, uh, of course, there is this big... Uh, Corpus on perpetrators in Germany, not that much in uh, uh, in Italy, and uh, uh, and this kind of research is somehow uh, authoritative in a sense yes. that uh, yes. methodologically, theoretically, and also it sometimes takes away the attention that uh, there were several perpetrators in these particular uh, countries and. Uh, 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 there was there is also another line of um, uh, research which is only focusing on the national context that would that ignores yes. the transnational yes. element of, of fascism and nazism so i try to in the uh, introduction map out that what are the consequences of uh, uh, I mean, how, how uh, does this uh, uh, particular situation contribute to the invisibilization which is the uh, key point in, in the book. And I also try to use other comparative material. But of course, you know, with the Ustasha movement, we are lucky because there are some uh, books or the Salo Republic or, of course, the Iron Guard. We have got some, mm-hmm. um, uh, or the British 
fascist party. So there are some material or the, or the, or the Falange. There are several books which uh, somehow mention and look at the uh, this uh, question uh, mostly from the perspective of the party and the elite perspective, which means that this is mostly about men and very rarely about women's uh, role in this movement, in the mobilization, and what role women played in the the agenda of these different parties. So uh, that's why I think this is uh, uh, pretty interesting to look at the kind of blind spots of the of the research and that's what i call intersectional methodology of course intersectionality is this big buzzword nowadays and very often used as a descriptive category that this is intersectional but i what i'm trying to do is using intersectionality as a method simply asking what is what we don't see and why don't we see that and why this should be there and it's not there and why do i think that it should be there and it's not there so uh, especially especially the chapter about the photographs this was exactly born from this assumption that i looked at the photographs of the um uh, 1940s uh and Women were just not there, neither before 44, neither after. So where were the women? Why is this representational deficit in the photographs? So uh, that's that's um, that's what was my conscious yeah. methodological choice, mapping I, my and the blind spots of the literature. Yeah, and I, I mean, I admire the way that you combine both the qualitative and quantitative element of this because you're taking you're taking a small percentage of the legal files, right? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong about that, but how how many files were there, and then how do you do this with the databases? Because there, you 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 say I think correctly that there are some deficiencies in the the way even the archives set things up, right? Could you talk about that a little bit? Uh, right. So the uh, People's Tribunal's files are not only problematic as an institution, right, that it was set up in a hurry and uh, uh, it is actually copy. It was actually copying the Soviet uh, model of uh, mm-hmm. uh, of the of the justice system, but also the whole uh, system was uh, really flawed from from the beginning. And but it did not have any alternative, but the files of the uh, People's Tribunals had been uh, uh, distributed between, uh, in, in even in the case of Budapest, between the Budapest City Archive and the uh, Historical Archive of the Secret Services. So uh, what uh, uh, I was doing as a kind of off project of this, uh, that uh, together with uh, Ildiko Borna, who is an associate professor at ALTE, we published a book about the political justice in uh, Budapest between 19, uh, after the Second World War by CU Press, when we analyzed with, uh, uh, quantita- with, uh, with quantitative methods these files. And actually, uh, I'm very grateful for her help, and I learned a lot. She's a person of numbers. And uh, we tried to uh, quantify this Mm -hmm. 52,000 files which are available in the Budapest air It's an incredible amount of work. I I mean, I just don't know how many years it would take to do that. When when did you start, may I ask, um, with her working Uh, on that? 
Ooh, uh, I lost in this pandemic time. I, I'm lost my totally the sense of time. Uh, the book was published. <laughs> uh, the book was published. I, I don't even remember when the book was published. First in Hungarian and then by the CU Press. 2005, we, maybe. Oh, yeah. sorry. Okay. So, but we got a big grant from the Rothschild Foundation, so we could get uh, some help with uh, research assistants who actually went to the archive and coded those files. And then we mm-hmm. set up a database and we could actually, uh, because of the uh, sampling method, where there is a whole chapter about sampling, this was not, which was written by me, I can tell you the secret, but by Yudi Kovarna. Uh, uh, this, after this, uh, uh, the sampling, uh, we could make uh, uh, very well-based statements about the social composition of the um, uh, of the. Uh, of the uh, defendants, the the crimes, the gender composition. So this this is a pretty solid uh, review of what mm-hmm. actually has happened, and this is pretty uh, paradox that somebody who is a feminist uh, historian spends so much time in figuring out what has happened. But you know now there is a pretty uh, solid book which is uh, based on numbers. Uh, uh, explaining what has happened uh, as far as the people's tribunals are concerned. And again, I have a political agenda here. And the political agenda is that then you cannot speak nonsense about the people's tribunals because we have the numbers, right? So Mm -hmm. it really, really makes it very difficult to instrumentalize this very complicated process for political purposes because any moment I can just uh, raise the book and say, read it. Yeah. yeah, and 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 that I think empirical dimension of the research is absolutely essential because otherwise, in, in Orban's regime, we're just dealing with mythology. And you know what I what I really like um, in in your technique is you get around not only this mythology but also the essentialism. However, I, I do wonder if there is a certain ideal type, and this sounds like a, a Weberian question, but is there an ideal type? of a woman in the Arrow Cross party, because you do describe it really, I think, um, in a fascinating way as a, a melting pot. So um, who are these women by, by name? And what, what do you finally get when you go very, very deeply into the archives and do this kind of empirical research? Are there names and stories and people? Do they cross class lines? What, what, are, they, what are they about? Mm-hmm. So the main... Uh paradox, which is so fascinating and which uh, 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 brought me to write this book already back in in 2000 when I was sitting in the living room of uh, the present, even present day active uh, uh, Hungarian uh, politically active women, uh, was that how come uh, that uh, uh, certain women who uh, actually has got, uh, you know, uh, extremely uh, serious uh, 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 higher educational background and who actually uh, uh, voice certain social inequalities, they find their place not on not in the leftist movement, not in the trade union movement, but in a racist, exclusionarist, anti-Semitic, far-right movement. And mm-hmm. in what sense this movement is being changed when these women are actually uh, joining. And uh, I, uh, that's uh, one of the interesting uh, points that uh, there was this uh, big debate in the Hungarian press about how feminist 
the Arrow Cross Party was in 1941 because there were so many women joining to this party. So uh, that's why uh, we have to look at this variety of women who actually accepted this anti-modernist uh, emancipation or this nationalist revolutionary uh, uh, way of emancipation. And who were these women? So, I mean, I, my research started from the People's Tribunal's files, and then I uh, looked at the press of this of this time, and then I looked at the uh, remaining material of the Arrow Cross Party, which is pretty interesting that very few uh, uh, documents remained, and they are also scattered in different archives. And uh, because when the Arrow Cross had you know, had to leave the country because of the approaching Red Army, they took uh, most of their files with them. And these files now in München, in the Institut für mm-hmm. Zeitgeschichte in the archive. Okay. And we have a fabulous book uh, based on that archive by Sol- Margit Söller-Schianze, but there is not a single woman in that book. And mm-hmm. if you look at the yeah. Uh, if you look, if you look at the uh, library invent uh, the uh, inventory of the archive, it's pretty obvious why there are no women. Because when they put all their material on trucks uh, in um, uh, the autumn of 1944, they obviously selected the so-called important files, and uh, the uh, the material of the women's section was not particularly important yeah, for those course. who actually packed this uh, uh, this vans. So right. uh, and and that's why it's so interesting that w- when and how material from the uh, party remained, and that's when uh, the Trianon Peace Treaty comes uh, into the picture, because the Arrow Cross Party was very active in those uh, territories w- uh, which were uh, t- uh, cut from Hungary after the lost First World War, and that's why I found. Um, uh, the only photograph about uh, uh, this arrow cross women in uniform in Kosice, in Kosha, in uh, Slovakia. And uh, totally surprisingly, the Novi Sad, Ujvidek, in, in Serbia mm-hmm. uh, territory, uh, in, the, in the archive, the whole uh, material of the, uh, the arrow cross section is available. Uh, yeah. Which means, and then based on that... Um, uh, files, I could reconstruct the party inner life and what were the conflicts inside the party, how the women were struggling for their own space in the in the party and uh, how actually the party was transformed because so many women joined the party uh, with these anti-modernist uh, revolutionary ideas. And of course, as every party life, I'm sorry to say, is pretty boring and formalized. This party, this, <laughs> this, party yeah. this, 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 this party was not an exception either. So you, 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 have got the letters of the uh, of the uh, of the different party members complaining about that they are bored with, uh, you know, yeah. taking care of the uh, corner of the heroes in the party yeah. room, and I mean. Yeah, but these are all very interesting that women joined in order to make politics, to make difference, to make the world more equal. And what they found is that they were expected to uh, do so-called social work and visit the uh, young mothers with small children and taking care of the orphans. And they were not necessarily happy with that assigned role. So that's why I said that... uh, 
the, the era of cross-party itself has changed because so many women. So let's speak about numbers, right? Yeah. What, what is this so many? What is this so many? Uh, uh, definitely, if you look at the numbers of the women in the uh, on the list uh, who were uh, defendants, you see that approximately 10% of those who were convicted, uh, uh, they were women. And this is a pretty high uh, percentage, uh, because if we look at the uh, numbers nowadays, uh, the in the Hungarian Parliament, uh, it's only ten percent who are women, mm. and also in the general kind of criminal inventory, the number of women who got into the criminal system increased only in the nineteen seventies from five percent to nowadays thirty percent. So this 10% who actually joined the Aerocross party, at a certain point there were uh, district uh, uh, branches where 33% of the members were women. So, I mean, it, really depend, it was really dependent on the particular district, but we are talking about large numbers. Yeah, I, and I, I really, I mean, I do want to take us out of the 1930s and 1940s um, into the 1970s and finally up to the present. Um, but I, my favorite chapter in your book is the chapter on photographs. And I, I know that you had mentioned this before. What kind of visual truth is in photographs and, and what what's not there? Um, you know, I, I think about the work of Marianne Hirsch um, and others, Carl Zemmel, whose work you mentioned. Um, I, I really would like to ask you, how you interpret these photographs because you get around the trope of the photographs depicting the women as wives and mothers and far right um, in a subordinate or kind of supplementary role. How, how do you end up restoring their agency and their action and ultimately through the photographs establishing their networks of perpetration? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. This uh, chapter was born on my because I was asking the question, how did these women look like? I mean, there is no way that I would. Uh, I, I want to visual. I want to see their eyes, right? I want to see mm-hmm. them. How do they look like? And uh, uh, in, interestingly enough, I I haven't found any photographs in these hundreds of files of the people's tribunals I went through, and that is already a finding that the people's tribunals did not use photograph as a proof. And then I was wondering where the heck I, I can find photographs. And then I started yeah. to uh, uh, scan uh, the different uh, photo archives. And mm-hmm. uh, and there is Fort, a... Uh, Fortepan, Fort right? Uh, Did Fort, you look? Fortepan, uh, Fort yes. And also the Museum of Photography and also the National Archive of uh, uh, of uh, the Hungarian National uh, Museum. So, and uh, then um, I... And, and I was wondering, why don't I find them? Where are they, right? And where they could have been? And then I started to uh, look at the uh, different uh, miscellaneous boxes, and that's where I found them. And that's where I found the m- most astonishing photograph, I think, which is about the execution of a, uh, a woman and uh, uh, who was a war criminal and whose name is Monty, which is a kind of diminutive for Margaret. But uh, none of the women who were executed for the uh, uh, as a war criminal has a name Margaret. So obviously, the person who was cataloging this uh, photograph did not, you know, uh, invest any energy to figure out who the uh, who this person was on that uh, on that photograph. So 
So that's why we have got a, um, a pretty astonishing photograph also published in this volume uh, without you know, figuring out who is this woman whom we see a couple of minutes before the execution. And I also tried the different uh, new private archives. So I tried the uh, archive, oh, okay. the, 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 the digital yeah. archive of the of the Whisperer, and Whisperer was ah, a, right, a, a, right. A, webs, a website which was actually run from a U.S. server, and that was a neo-Nazi uh, website which had a section that uh, uh, our well, the, our, uh, our former heroes. I think that was the subsection, and then they encouraged the visitors to upload their family photographs. And mm. uh, uh, and the that's one of the reasons why I was not finding these photos because the iconoclasm, right? Because yes, uh, yes. Between, between between 1945 and 1989, having a photo of your uh, grandmother uh, smiling together with uh, the head of the Aerocross party was not <laughs> the surest ticket to the prison. So, sure. uh, in, so that's why these photos actually emerged after 89 uh, when uh, they were revising the anti-fascist framework. And so okay. I, what I did, I registered on this whisperer under pen name, which is, of course, raising several issues uh, on um, research ethics. And uh, then I started started to monitor what kind of photos are actually up being uploaded there. And lots mm. of interesting photographs uh, uh, about the women who were uh, employees in the Aerocross party were up there. And um, uh, then I tried to get a permit from the administrator to publish it, but never responded. And then came the uh, change in the legislation against uh, hate crimes. And then this um, uh, web page was uh, discontinued and now it's available only on the dark web and that's where mm. that's this is a limit right i'm yeah, very yeah, adventurous i'm asking you to tell us all of your secrets <laughs> our listeners no. want to know i mean i yeah. i i i am i'm much more of an amateur i i end up on genealogy websites and looking for information that way right. sometimes because it it really is a taboo, and there are so many taboos that, that still exist um, in doing research to, to make the perpetrators um, come, to, come to terms with justice and, and anti-Semitism and the Holocaust and everything. So, I, I mean, you know, we're still talking about um, a country and a city after 1944 in which you have 600,000 Jews executed, and we're still talking about a country where much more research, I think, on this topic remains to be done. So I'm, I'm going to ask you the next question really about the fabric of memory in Hungarian society. So obviously in the past 10 years or maybe 20 years, there have been these changes in the legislation, but what, what would you hope for research on this topic in, in Hungary and in, in the context of illiberal democracy and illiberalism today? Uh, I mean, this is a very serious question, and we were laughing before that. So, I mean, uh, the, yeah, the problem is that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, so this, uh, this is a very serious uh, question that uh, how uh, there uh, in the past uh, 10 years, uh, there was an enormous investment by the liberal uh, uh, government setting up parallel uh, historical research institutions. 
And uh, there hasn't been in the history of uh, Hungarian historiography so much money channeled into historical research. And uh, uh, But the way how this has been done without any transparency, without any quality control, without any uh, reference to the international uh, uh, research actually uh, uh, makes this um, uh, effort uh, extremely uh, dubious. And uh, because of the of CEU had to go to exile, and uh, because of the nationalization of the different uh, universities now, uh, lots of colleagues are uh, actually applying self censorship and direct or indirect uh, censorship, and the whole uh, structure of the Hungarian historiography uh, historiography has been changed. Uh, because uh, getting uh, funding from outside is uh, not only impossible because of the uh, institutional framework, but also makes you, uh, you know, a target of uh, different attacks and, and dubious. While, on the other hand, the internal uh, sources and the internal funding is abundant. Is abundant mm-hmm. and easy That's for important. those who uh, abundant and easy for those who are loyal to the government. So, mm-hmm. uh, and the topic I'm, you know, I'm researching this invisibility uh, is uh, is really a topic which is not on uh, high priority by the liberal uh, uh, government because this is one of the uh, taboos of the uh, illiberal memory politics, namely the collaboration and the Hungarian perpetrators. And um, uh, because uh, some of the listeners might uh, follow the erecting of the uh, monument of the German uh, occupation, the victims of the German occupation at uh, a prominent uh, spot in uh, Budapest, the capital of Hungary, uh, which was erected during night. Uh, without any mm-hmm. kind of uh, uh, discussion. And this yeah. uh, monument is basically based on the assumption that Hungary had been always a victim of different occupations, starting with the German, followed by the Soviet occupation, which is not new because after 1989, the, the, the former communist countries, uh, this double occupation, the theory of double occupation was used first to set up anti-communism as a main framework. Secondly, to avoid any kind of uh, uh, facing responsibility for the collaboration with the Soviets and with the Germans. So uh, this uh, uh, issue of the Hungarian uh, uh, collaboration is is really a tabooized and difficult topic. And, and could you talk a little bit about where your work places in gender history and especially in, in let's say, social history as well? So um, in terms of the historiography, what, what are you imagining for future research, not just on the Arrow Cross Party, but on the history of, let's say, global far-right movements and, and fascism or neoliberal neo-patriarchy, as, as one person has called it? What, what, do, you, what do you see, let's say, in, um, in research going forward from your book? Uh, this, um, uh, I mean, when I was mapping uh, why these women are invisible, uh, the one of the reasons is the different topics and tendencies in 
feminist historiography because uh, feminist historiography mostly likes to see women as agents of uh, positive change and uh, mm-hmm. a kind of uh, a positive story. I mean, this story is not really a, a good story. It's a disturbing story. It's a challenging story. And the story which actually forces us to re-examine the different um, uh, orthodoxies which are really present in uh, in gender history writing. And... Um, uh, but in, uh, in Germany, uh, there are, uh, had been several uh, uh, research book. Uh, pu- several books had been published on uh, the uh, perpetrators of the guards of the different concentration camps and uh, the prominent women like the wives, like the Eva Brown uh, story. And uh, uh, the social history research is already starting about the uh, medical stuff, about uh, female doctors. And I also find find this really, really important that now we are getting to this extremely time-consuming and very difficult period when we are doing this diving into the the sources and trying to uh, get into this, um, uh, 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 you know, to understand the the different structures and uh, opportunities why so many female doctors actually joined the Aerocross party. Mm -hmm. And do you you think that the joining, this is a smaller question, maybe it could be a larger question, but the joining into parties like the Aerocross party is a moment of liberation. You use the word emancipation. I found that interesting before, and I want to kind of hold you to that because it the question about emancipation or liberation through far-right movements might strike people as, as absolutely oxymoronic. I mean, why people would make that especially why women, but why, why anyone would make that choice. So I find that one of the great paradoxes in your book, could, could you explain this emancipatory um, moment where, where women become involved in, in movements like this? I'm using the concept of anti-modernist emancipation. And we have to see this particular social context where uh, several women actually could not... Um, um, uh, should reject the so-called conservative offer. The conservative offer of the interwar times is that you are, you know, studying something and then you get uh, married and then your uh, husband is uh, earning enough money and you are staying home, have children, and then you live happily after. And this kind of conservative um, um, uh, 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 women's politics was basically out of reach for so many women because of structural reasons, because they were single and they have to uh, uh, earn their living. And um, for them, this kind of uh, 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 women's politics was not really acceptable because it did not meet their everyday lived experiences. So these women were looking for alternatives. And for them, the Communist Party, the Social Democratic Party, and the trade union, they were not really uh, 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 an option, an opportunity, not not to speak about how sexist the trade union movement was, I mean, in brackets, but yes. because of the because of the interwar move, interwar Hungary was very much uh, uh, informed by the anti- communism and the anti-leftist sentiments because uh, that was the main framework blaming the social democrats and the communists for the loss of the first world war and uh, because of the uh, loss of the uh, two-thirds of the hungarian territory so in that particular uh, framework uh, where um, uh, 
lots of women who joined the Arrow Cross Party, they were refugees from these territories, from the uh, from the Czechoslovakia, Romania, and uh, and uh, uh, Yugoslavia to Hungary, and they were radically opposing uh, the leftist alternative. Still, they have an mm-hmm. experience in the employment. And that's why it is so important to stress that the first uh, uh, bill, draft bill against sexual harassment in the workplace was submitted by the Aerocross Party um, in Hungary in 1938. And uh, this, of course, was submitted in the framework that the the Jewish uh, international capitalists are misusing the innocent Hungarian uh, women who had to do some work. Still, right. that was the that was the first. That's stunning. Attempt. That's stunning. <laughs> that, really, I mean the, that argument. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. But that, but that's that's the. Uh, uh, but they received support and help, and uh, in, from the 1930s, Hungary is impover- getting impoverished. The social welfare structure is uh, disappearing, and there was only one party which was offering a kind of security and support, and that was the radical, far-right, anti-Semitic offer of the uh, Aerocross party. So that's why it's, um, as Walter Benjamin said, always the uh, failure of the leftist social democratic uh, alternative when when people are turning to the far-right. That was also the case, because there were several grievances to which the Aerocross Party had an answer. This answer yeah. was um, uh, as a kind of a racist, anti-Semitic answer, but it was an answer which met uh, the uh, the demand of uh, so many women. That that is so fascinating. I mean, honestly, I. I... I would hope that liberal feminists and progressives <laughs> take note of this and, and really in the in the jump into the 2010s that this idea of the far rightist welfare state that's offered only to some right but when it is offered to some I, maybe it seems effective I don't know it, that's that's just striking to me um I would really like to ask you, as since we're winding down and, and we'll be running out of time, what your current research is about. You, you mentioned a lot of um, projects and, and your activism. Could you talk to our listeners about everything that you're involved in? You're involved in so many different things right now. Uh, I, just, uh, I would like to mention two projects very briefly. One is my new book, which is coming out in spring by the De Greuters, uh, which is... Uh, a history of a massacre which happened uh, on the 15th of October 1944 and I plan to write this book as a crime story so uh, this is uh, I hope uh, you know a, a book that you start from the cover to the end and read it and you don't want to stop it and uh, this book is um, uh, interesting because the perpetrator is a woman so I found this file when I was doing this um, a big project on the People's Tribunal's files, and I found this um, uh, um, uh, woman who was uh, hanged uh, because uh, allegedly she was the perpetrator of this massacre, which uh, left uh, 18 people dead in the center of Budapest. And this is the story which is coming out, and uh, I interviewed the survivors, I interviewed the perpetrators, I interviewed those who participated in the um, in the justice process, again, you can write history when there are sources. And luckily, this story has got lots of sources, so I'm uh, I'm analyzing these sources. And the other project I'm very much involved, I uh, I already mentioned the 
extremely dubious memorialization strategies of the liberal government is the uh, erecting a memorial um, in yeah. uh, Budapest uh, for the victims of uh, wartime sexual violence. And uh, maybe the listeners know that in the recent municipal election, uh, Budapest was won by the opposition. And interestingly, in this January, uh, the, uh, the the Budapest municipal uh, made a bipartisan decision. It means that the opposition and the uh, and the uh, uh, present ruling uh, uh, leftist liberal uh, uh, politicians agreed on setting up this uh, uh, memorial after a long process of uh, discussion. And this uh, is a transparent process based on dialogue. And we started a, pro- uh, 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 a series of um, uh, lectures in the Budapest City Archive. Uh, there is a, a collection of, uh, of uh, personal stories. There will be international uh, conferences. Everything is available on the website of this project, which is uh, uh, Hu. It has got an English version as well. Uh, and uh, E-L-G-A-L-L-G-A-T-V-A, elhallgatva.ho. And this, uh, in this website, uh, uh, what we are trying to do is to make this um, uh, uh, as a flagship project, uh, the open a space for discussion. And hopefully we will have the uh, international open call for memorials uh, next spring. And then there will be a, an exhibition of the submitted uh, uh, pieces. And uh, for 2023, hopefully we will have a memorial place which will put Budapest on the site of the uh, interesting uh, memorials or the uh, cities where you have got interesting um, uh, memorials. That That's amazing. I mean, I would also hope that there would be visual work done with all the photographs that you've correct, collected. Have, have you thought about this too for both for your book and for the other projects uh the about the sexual violence you mean yes uh, during yes. wartime yeah so uh the, i wrote a book about the history of sexual violence during the second world war which is coming out in german by the Wallstein verlag uh in the spring next year again and then uh, the, uh there is a chapter about the visual representation of uh, sexual violence during wartime uh uh, uh, there, basically analyzing the taboo and uh, also the limits, what you can do and what you cannot do with uh, uh, atrocity photographs. And when you have got naked women's bodies photographs, what can you do and what you cannot do? But that will be in German. Okay. Well, um, we are now seriously out of time. So I want to say kusunum sepen and, and thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. This was an honor. Thank you. Thanks to our listeners. I'm Stephen Siegel. I'm your host here at New Books Network, and we've been featuring Professor Andrea Peto, who is the author of a new book. The book is called The Women of the Arrow Cross Party, Invisible Hungarian Perpetrators in the Second World War, published by Palgrave in 2020. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.